Chapter Fourteen of At the Earth's Core. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Scott Carpenter. At the Earth's Core by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter Fourteen, The Garden of Eden. With no heavenly guide, it is little wonder that I became confused and lost in the labyrinthine maze of those mighty hills. What in reality I did was to pass entirely through them and come out above the valley upon the farther side. I know that I wandered for a long time until, tired and hungry, I came upon a small cave in the face of the limestone formation which had taken the place of the granite farther back. The cave which took my fancy lay halfway up the precipitous side of a lofty cliff. The way to it was such that I knew no extremely formidable beast could frequent it, nor was it large enough to make a comfortable habitat for any but the smaller mammals or reptiles. Yet it was with the utmost caution that I crawled within its dark interior. Here I found a rather large chamber, lighted by a narrow cleft in the rock above, which let the sunlight filter in in sufficient quantities partially to dispel the utter darkness which I had expected. The cave was entirely empty nor were there any signs of its having been recently occupied. The opening was comparatively small, so that after considerable effort I was able to lug up a boulder from the valley below which entirely blocked it. Then I returned again to the valley for an armful of grasses, and on this trip was fortunate enough to knock over an orthopi, the diminutive horse of Pellucidar, a little animal about the size of a fox terrier, which abounds in all parts of the inner world. Thus with food and bedding I returned to my lair, where after a meal of raw meat, to which I had now become quite accustomed, I dragged the boulder before the entrance and curled myself up upon a bed of grasses, a naked primeval caveman as savagely primitive as my prehistoric progenitors. I awoke rested but hungry, and pushing the boulder aside, crawled out upon the little rocky shelf which was my front porch. Before me spread a small but beautiful valley, through the center of which a clear and sparkling river wound its way down to an inland sea, the blue waters of which were just visible between the two mountain ranges which embraced this little paradise. The sides of the opposite hills were green with verdure, for a great forest clothed them to the foot of the red and yellow and copper-green of the towering crags which formed their summit. The valley itself was carpeted with a luxuriant grass, where here and there patches of wild flowers made great splashes of vivid color against the prevailing green. Dotted over the face of this valley were little clusters of palm-like trees, three or four together as a rule. Beneath these stood antelope, while others grazed in the open, or wandered gracefully to a nearby ford to drink. There were several species of this beautiful animal, the most magnificent somewhat resembling the giant eland of Africa, except that their spiral horns form a complete curve backward over their ears, and then forward again beneath them, ending in sharp and formidable points, some two feet before the face and above the eyes. In size they remind one of a purebred Hereford bull, yet they are very agile and fast. The broad yellow bands that striped the dark roan of their coats made me take them for zebra when I first saw them. All in all they are handsome animals, and added the finishing touch to the strange and lovely landscape that spread before my new home. I had determined to make the cave my headquarters, and with it as a base, make systematic exploration of the surrounding country in search of the land of Sari. First I devoured the remainder of the carcass of the orthopi I had killed before my last sleep. Then I hid the great secret in a deep niche at the back of my cave, rolled the boulder before my front door, and with bow, arrows, sword, and shield, scrambled down into the peaceful valley. The grazing herds moved to one side as I passed through them, 
the little orthopi evincing the greatest wariness and galloping to safest distances. All of the animals stopped feeding as I approached, and after moving to what they considered a safe distance, stood contemplating me with serious eyes and upcocked ears. Once one of the old bull antelopes of the striped species lowered his head and bellowed angrily, even taking a few steps in my direction, so that I thought he meant to charge. But after I had passed, he resumed feeding as though nothing had disturbed him. Near the lower end of the valley I passed a number of tapers, and across the river I saw a great sadok, the enormous double-horned progenitor of the modern rhinoceros. At the valley's end the cliffs upon the left ran out into the sea, so that to pass around them as I desired to do it was necessary to scale them in search of a ledge, along which I might continue my journey. Some fifty feet from the base I came upon a projection which formed a natural path along the face of the cliff, and this I followed out over the sea toward the cliff's end. Here the ledge inclined rapidly upward toward the top of the cliffs, the stratum which formed it evidently having been forced up at this steep angle when the mountains behind it were born. As I climbed carefully up the ascent, my attention suddenly was attracted aloft by the sound of strange hissing, and what resembled the flapping of wings. And at the first glance there broke upon my horrified vision the most frightful thing I had seen, even within Pellucidar. It was a giant dragon such as is pictured in the legends and fairy tales of earth folk. Its huge body must have measured forty feet in length, while the bat-like wings that supported it in mid-air had a spread of fully thirty. Its gaping jaws were armed with long sharp teeth and its claw equipped with horrible talons. The hissing noise which had first attracted my attention was issuing from its throat and seemed to be directed at something beyond and below me which I could not see. The ledge upon which I stood terminated abruptly a few paces farther on, and as I reached the end, I saw the cause of the reptile's agitation. Sometime in past ages an earthquake had produced a fault at this point, so that beyond the spot where I stood, the strata had slipped down a matter of twenty feet. The result was that the continuation of my ledge lay twenty feet below me, where it ended as abruptly as did the end upon which I stood. And here, evidently, halted in flight by this insurmountable break in the ledge, stood the object of the creature's attack, a girl cowering upon the narrow platform, her face buried in her arms, as though to shut out the sight of the frightful death which hovered just above her. The dragon was circling lower, and seemed about to dart in upon its prey. There was no time to be lost, scarce an instant in which to weigh the possible chances that I had against the awfully armed creature, but the sight of that frightened girl below me called out to all that was best in me in the instinct for protection of the other sex, which nearly must have equaled the instinct of self-preservation in primeval man, drew me to the girl's side like an irresistible magnet. Almost thoughtless of the consequences, I leaped from the end of the ledge upon which I stood for the tiny shelf twenty feet below. At the same instant the dragon darted in toward the girl, but my sudden advent upon the scene must have startled him, for he veered to one side, and then rose above us once more. The noise I made as I landed beside her convinced the girl that the end had come, for she thought I was the dragon. But finally, when no cruel fangs closed upon her, she raised her eyes in astonishment. As they fell upon me, the expression that came into them would be difficult to describe. But her feelings could scarcely have been one whit more complicated than my own, for the wide eyes that looked into mine were those of Diane the Beautiful. "'Diane!' I cried. "'Diane, thank God that I came in time!' "'You!' she whispered, and then she hid her face again, nor could I tell whether she were glad or angry that I had come. Once more the dragon was sweeping toward us, 
and so rapidly that I had no time to unsling my bow. All that I could do was to snatch up a rock and hurl it at the thing's hideous face. Again my aim was true, and with a hiss of pain and rage, the reptile wheeled once more and soared away. Quickly I fitted an arrow now that I might be ready at the next attack, and as I did so I looked down at the girl so that I surprised her in a surreptitious glance which she was stealing at me. But immediately she again covered her face with her hands. Look at me, Diane, I pleaded. Are you not glad to see me? She looked straight into my eyes. I hate you, she said, and then, as I was about to beg for a fair hearing, she pointed over my shoulder. The Thipdar comes, she said, and I turned again to meet the reptile. So this was a Thipdar. I might have known it. The cruel bloodhound of the Mahars, the long-extinct pterodactyl of the outer world. But this time I met it with a weapon it had never faced before. I had selected my longest arrow, and with all my strength I had bent the bow until the very tip of the shaft rested upon the thumb of my left hand, and then, as the great creature darted toward us, I let drive straight for that tough breast. Hissing like the escape valve of a steam engine, the mighty creature fell, turning and twisting into the sea below, my arrow buried completely in its carcass. I turned toward the girl. She was looking past me. It was evident that she had seen the Thipdar die. Diane, I said. Won't you tell me that you are not sorry that I have found you? I hate you, was her only reply. But I imagined that there was less vehemence in it than before, yet it might have been but my imagination. Why do you hate me, Diane? I asked, but she did not answer me. What are you doing here? I asked. And what has happened to you since Huja freed you from the Sagoths? At first I thought that she was going to ignore me entirely, but finally she thought better of it. I was again running away from Jubal the Ugly One, she said. After I escaped from the Sagoths, I made my way alone back to my own land, but on account of Jubal, I did not dare enter the villages or let any of my friends know that I had returned, for fear that Jubal might find out. By watching for a long time, I found that my brother had not yet returned, and so I continued to live in a cave beside a valley which my race seldom frequents, awaiting the time that he should come back and free me from Jubal. But at last one of Jubal's hunters saw me, as I was creeping toward my father's cave, to see if my brother had yet returned, and he gave the alarm, and Jubal set out after me. He has been pursuing me across many lands. He cannot be far behind me now. When he comes he will kill you and carry me back to his cave. He is a terrible man. I have gone as far as I can go, and there is no escape. And she looked hopelessly up at the continuation of the ledge, twenty feet above us. But he shall not have me, she suddenly cried, with great vehemence. The sea is there, she pointed over the edge of the cliff, and the sea shall have me rather than Jubal. But I have you now, Diane, I cried, nor shall Jubal, nor any other have you, for you are mine. And I seized her hand, nor did I lift it above her head and let it fall in token of release. She had risen to her feet and was looking straight into my eyes with level gaze. I do not believe you, she said, for if you meant it, you would have done this when the others were present to witness it. Then I should truly have been your mate. Now there is no one to see you do it, for you know that without witnesses your act does not bind you to me and she withdrew her hand from mine and turned away. I tried to convince her that I was sincere, but she simply couldn't forget the humiliation that I had put upon her on that other occasion. If you mean all that you say, you will have ample chance to prove it, she said. If Jubal does not catch and kill you, I am in your power, and the treatment you accord me will be the best proof of your intentions toward me. I am not your mate, and again I tell you that I hate you, and that I should be glad if I never saw you again. 
Diane certainly was candid. There was no gainsaying that. In fact, I found candor and directness to be quite a marked characteristic of the cavemen of Pellucidar. Finally, I suggested that we make some attempt to gain my cave, where we might escape the searching Jubal, for I am free to admit that I had no considerable desire to meet the formidable and ferocious creature of whose mighty prowess Diane had told me when I first met her. He it was who, armed with a puny knife, had met and killed a cave bear in a hand-to-hand -hand struggle. It was Jubal who could cast his spear entirely through the armored carcass of the Sadok at fifty paces. It was he who had crushed the skull of a charging Dyrith with a single blow of his war-club. No, I was not pining to meet the ugly one, and it was quite certain that I should not go out and hunt for him, but the matter was taken out of my hands very quickly, as is often the way, and I did meet Jubal the ugly one face to face. This is how it happened. I had led Diane back along the ledge the way she had come, searching for a path that would lead us to the top of the cliff, for I knew that we could then cross over to the edge of my own little valley, where I felt certain that we should find a means of ingress from the cliff top. As we proceeded along the ledge, I gave Diane minute directions for finding my cave against the chance of something happening to me. I knew that she would be quite safely hidden away from pursuit once she gained the shelter of my lair, and that the valley would afford her ample means of sustenance. Also, I was very much piqued by her treatment of me. My heart was sad and heavy, and I wanted to make her feel badly by suggesting that something terrible might happen to me, that I might, in fact, be killed. But it didn't work worth a cent, at least as far as I could perceive. Diane simply shrugged those magnificent shoulders of hers and murmured something to the effect that one was not rid of trouble so easily as that. For a while I kept still. I was utterly squelched, and to think that I had twice protected her from attack, the last time risking my life to save hers. It was incredible that even a daughter of the Stone Age could be so ungrateful, so heartless. But maybe her heart partook of the qualities of her epoch. Presently we found a rift in the cliff, which had been widened and extended by the action of the water draining through it from the plateau above. It gave us a rather rough climb to the summit, but finally we stood upon the level mesa which stretched back for several miles to the mountain range. Behind us lay the broad inland sea, curving upward in the horizonless distance to merge into the blue of the sky, so that for all the world it looked as though the sea lapped back to arch completely over us and disappear beyond the distant mountains at our backs. The weird and uncanny aspect of the seascapes of Pellucidar bulk description. At our right lay a dense forest, but to the left the country was open and clear to the plateau's farther verge. It was in this direction that our way led, and we had turned to resume our journey when Diane touched my arm. I turned to her, thinking that she was about to make peace overtures, but I was mistaken. Jubal, she said, and nodded toward the forest. I looked, and there, emerging from the dense wood, came a perfect wail of a man, he must have been seven feet tall and proportioned accordingly. He still was too far off to distinguish his features. Run, I said to Diane. I can engage him until you get a good start. Maybe we can hold him until you have gotten entirely away. And then, without a backward glance, I advanced to meet the ugly one. I had hoped that Diane would have a kind word to say to me before she went, for she must have known that I was going to my death for her sake. But she never even so much as bid me good-bye, and it was with a heavy heart that I strode through the flower-bespangled grass to my doom. When I had come close enough to Jubal to distinguish his features, I understood how it was that he had earned the sobriquet of Ugly One. Apparently some fearful beast had ripped away one entire side of his face. The eye was gone, the nose, and all the flesh. 
so that his jaws and all his teeth were exposed and grinning through the horrible scar. Formerly he may have been as good to look upon as the others of his handsome race, and it may be that the terrible result of this encounter had tended to sour an already strong and brutal character. However this may be, it is quite certain that he was not a pretty sight, and now that his features, or what remained of them, were distorted in rage at the sight of Diane with another male, he was indeed most terrible to see, and much more terrible to meet. He had broken into a run now, and as he advanced he raised his mighty spear while I halted and, fitting an arrow to my bow, took as steady aim as I could. I was somewhat longer than usual, for I must confess that the sight of this awful man had wrought upon my nerves to such an extent that my knees were anything but steady. What chance had I against this mighty warrior for whom even the fiercest cave-bear had no terrors? Could I hope to best one who slaughtered the Sadoc and Dyrath single-handed? I shuddered, but in fairness to myself my fear was more for Diane than for my own fate. 